Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. If you're here for the first time today, that I'm one of the pastors on staff, and this is bald head on purpose. Not really. This is just who I am. Um, this is kind of an exciting day for us. We're in the process of wrapping up a series, and I bring up the bald head because that's something my daughter uh, frequently likes to tell me she's not a big fan of. I have a five-year-old, and she tells me that bald heads aren't beautiful. And I'm still working through that because we're in a series called Resolutions, and it's about um, this is the time of year where we're all trying to make ourselves better, we're trying to get healthier, we're trying to have a better body or better balance sheet or make a better decision for a career path. And for me, I'm stuck with just being bald, and I'm coming to terms with that, but you know, I'm open to suggestions. But here's the thing that I know, even if I had a flowing mane of hair, and it was beautiful and the people sang songs about my hair, and uh, they were like, I don't know, I, I was a hair model, and, um, or I was just a model in general, that it still probably wouldn't satisfy the deepest longing of my heart, right? I'm, I joined a gym recently, and I'm trying to work out regularly, but as I imagine this year in 2017, I, I get to this place where I think, I hope at the end of the year I have more than just a better body or a better balance sheet. Right, that I hope I have more going on in my life and that it's not just that I'm some better version of myself, but I think we all kind of connect with that. That when we really sit down and we think about the people we admire, we think about the people that we look up to, it's the people whose lives were spent not trying to make a better version of themselves, but who spend their lives trying to make the world around them a better place. That there's a lot of people who are willing to sit on the sideline and throw stones and criticize, but there's not a lot of people who jump into the arena and actually try to build something that makes a difference. And I'm not just talking about societally, I'm talking about even in local communities or even in your own home. But it's those people who come from adversity and say, you know what, just because this was how my family played out in the past doesn't mean that's how it has to continue to play out in the future that we admire those people who take steps to not just make a better version of themselves, but to make the world around them a better place. And this series that we wanted to kick off January with and, and really kind of frame this year for you is that instead of us just seeking to come up with bold resolutions in our life, let's make this year, 2017, about finding solutions in the problems around our life. That instead of just making a better version of me, to have a frame of mind that imagines a world that could be better around me. And so last week, we said to kick off this journey, we talked about this, this idea of a burden. We, we asked this simple question, what breaks your heart? That many of us want to know what God desires for us to do. And even if you're here and you're not a spiritual person and you're still processing through these choices, even deep down inside of you is a desire for your life to count and matter. And you want to do something with your life that makes a difference. And I said last week that the clue to finding out what God would have you to do or the clue to even where to start and what to do begins with this simple question, what breaks my heart? What inside, what bothers me about the world at a deeper level? And I'm not talking about cable companies and horrible customer service. I'm talking about the things that has to change because the world needs it to be different those things inside of you, and that we all have these different passion points and that maybe for some of us, we haven't discovered that yet, but that the question, what breaks my heart, is essential if we're going to find the clue in what God desires for us to do in 2017. But the what by itself isn't enough. My what uh, for, for 
the last 15 years has been around fatherhood. I grew up in a really broken home. My dad kind of bailed on me before I was born, and so I kind of grew up with this just vacuum and this hole. And for me, that journey of burden and father and what does it look like now that I am a father has been a journey for me that's gone from just being something that bothers me and not knowing how to do it to something that's a very defining part of my life and the choices that I make. And so having a profound what isn't enough. I think that's why you're here today. Just having a passion for Syrian refugees or the drug crisis or um, inner city kids or whatever it may be that's burning inside of you. All of us recognize that that's not enough because there's a lot of people who believe the world needs to change, but there's not a lot of change in the world by the people who believe that. And what I want to do is pick up on the story that I introduced last week from the book of Nehemiah. And to do that, what I want to do is, um, I'm going to be kind of fast today. I'm going to give you a lot of information. Legitimately, this could probably be a book and is a book at some point, I'm sure, in somewhere in this world. Um, so, but what I want to do today is give you some hooks to start some conversations with yourself and those around you. And the way I like to do it um, is I, I like to play. So um, I want to use dominoes to kind of teach the lesson today of taking you beyond the what to the how. How do I take what's breaking in my heart and use it to start to build hope in the lives around me? Because there's this huge gap. In fact, I would offer up that reality is, is that for many of us, when uh, we have our heart broken by something, the alternative, like what we imagine this preferred future of what it could be, it feels so big and so impossible. And we say, how can I, with my little tiny self, make a difference? How do I affect this major problem and bring solution? If maybe you're in middle school and high school, how can I, caring about that kid at the table sitting by himself, actually change the fact that he gets bullied? How do I make a difference? And what today is about is about that gap. Because this, this space right here is where the magic happens. This is where a heart that's broken becomes a heart that brings hope. And Nehemiah, the same story that we started with last week, gives us an idea of how to do that. That Nehemiah um, is a man who has been taken from his homeland. He's been there his entire life. He's serving a foreign king, and this is about 2,500 years ago. And he gets picked to be this person, this role, this responsibility of being the cupbearer. And a cupbearer's job was literally to drink the wine before the king drank the wine so that if anyone tried to poison the king, you died and the king would know that's bad wine. Like, that's his gig. The king watches him drink it. All right, you didn't die. It must be safe for me. Like, that's what he's nine to five, punching the clock he does every day. Could you imagine that? He's, he's essentially an employed, um, like, experimental lab rat. And every day, this idea that the king may die gets put, placed on him. And yet, that's not a bad gig if you happen to be living in exile in a foreign land. This is, at least he's hanging around the king. At least he's got uh, sweet digs. He's got the nice apartment. He's kind of living it up where most of his relatives, most of his friends are, are kind of stuck in the ghettos surrounding the city. Life is really hard for them. Preceding his kind of job role is the fact that the king 
one of the kings has allowed some of them to return back to Jerusalem. And so the city that used to be his homeland is now starting to be slowly repopulated. And about 50,000 people are living in a city that once was completely desolate. But the problem is, is that that city is completely broken down and fallen apart. Now, I hated of all the weeks that this is the week that I'm going to use this word a lot. So I I am a pastor. I'm not a politician. So please, I'm going to go ahead and like call the elephant out in the room. Nehemiah is burdened by the fact that this place does not have a wall. And when I say the wall, I'm not talking about the wall that's been in the news this week. Okay, so I just want to go ahead and call that out because I was working through it and I was like, God bless this world. I don't, this, this is a different kind of wall. Okay, so just kind of again, put that this wall um, is an ancient wall. Ancient walls have different purposes than today's walls and ancient walls protected the city. There, these were nation states, these were city states, and that um, there wasn't deadbolts, there wasn't security systems. Siri, you couldn't tell Siri to lock your door and set your alarm, right? You would go to bed in a tiny little hut shack, and your wooden door would just be propped up, and anybody could sneak in, kill you, and rob everything from you. And that was reality in life there. And the way that you went to sleep at night peacefully was knowing that the city wall and the city gates were on lockdown. And that people were patrolling. And that wall provided a sense of safety and security that would keep some of these foreign invaders and armies and rebels and thieves from sneaking in to to bring devastation. And Nehemiah said, this place is falling apart, and he had a burden to do something about it. And Nehemiah sets on this journey to rebuild the wall that's been broken down in Jerusalem. And so we see... Nehemiah in chapter 2, right? Chapter 1 last week kind of spent a lot of time. Nehemiah hears about it and it breaks his heart. He fasts, he weeps, he mourns, he's grieved over a place he's never been to and a people that he's never met. This is it's, it's crushing him. And so Nehemiah chapter 2, um, if you have the Encounter Church app, you'll find that message notes is there and I'll actually have all the passages. And here's the thing, you don't have to read it. I'm going to read it for you. But you're going to notice there's a pretty long section that I'm going to work through throughout the day. And the reason why is I want you to understand the whole story of Nehemiah. Because believe it or not, a man 2,500 years from in the past can speak to you and I making a difference today. And by the end, I think you'll see it. He lays out a path for us to cover the gap between a heart that's broken and lives and hope that needs to be rebuilt. So Nehemiah chapter 2 Verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, who's the king he's working for, when wine was being brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, because that was illegal. If you were sad in the presence of the king, that could mean the king killed you, right? Different time. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. This is why, because he knows he could die. But I said to the king, may the king live forever and me too. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah has spent four months, four months for this moment. From chapter one where he first hears to now where he's speaking, four months have gone by and this is the first time he's talking about it. And it's been inside of him. And he says, the king said to me, what is it that you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven because he is gripped by fear. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judea where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. 
Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judea? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal part, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. I just want to stop there. And Nehemiah is writing this. The book of Nehemiah is his personal journal. That's why you see I and me, because this is him experiencing it. And he's, he's having this terrified. Could you imagine walking in front of the CEO of your large, if you work for a large corporation, and making bold demands? Hey, I'd like a leave of absence. I'd like the company jet. I'd also like the company credit card. And um, I'll be back in a few years. Oh, but, well, I want to rebuild something that actually, I want to help rebuild our competitor. And their, their infrastructure is really falling apart. I mean, this is essentially what he's asking for. This same king that he's talking to a couple decades before is the reason that the wall is destroyed. The city of Jerusalem tried to rebuild the wall, and King Artaxerxes stopped it with his military. I mean, Nehemiah is terrified. That's why he's like, I, I prayed to God. I, I stopped and I asked God again. I mean, he knows he's asking a man who stopped the project before to allow him to give him the company credit card, the company jet, to rebuild it. But then notice this. He says, then verse 11, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And then verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because of yet I have said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Nehemiah travels all that way. He gets there with the company jet, with the company travel force because the king grants him a small army to travel with. And he doesn't show up to get started. He shows up and no one even knows why he's there. Which is the first point. This is the first critical step. You see, Nehemiah doesn't start. That's what most of us do. We have a burden, and we try to start. And what happens is it fails. Because we're not ready. What Nehemiah does, what you see him do, this one is he studies. He studies the problem. If you notice during the text, right, the king asked him questions. Why, what's been happening in the four months? between him learning about this problem and him now speaking to the king? Well, he's, he's dealt with the challenges, the pessimism that, that all of us have when we look at this and imagine there's no way this can ever make a difference here, all that pessimism that rises up. He channels his pessimism to be productive. Well, one of the first, well, the king is never going to let me do it. Okay, well, how do I need to talk? To the king about this? When should I approach the king? I should probably pray. I should probably fast. I, I should probably spend some time thinking through my choices and my words for the king. Okay, well, even if the king says, yes, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough wood, you don't have a forest, but you know what? The king does. So if the king says yes, then maybe I could ask the king, maybe I could ask the king to get wood from his royal park. You're not going to make it all the way there. It's so dangerous. I'll ask the king 
if I can borrow his bodyguard. I mean, he's using his pessimism to be productive. The thing that you and I have that tells us the thing that can't be done could actually be put into service to help you get the very thing done that you think can't be done. And that's what he does. He channels his pessimism to be productive. All the reasons you say your marriage can't work out could be the very path for how your marriage could work out. Well, we have a communication problem. Well, then that's probably part of the plan. Work on communication. He studies. He processes, and he shows up, and when he rides into the city, he doesn't come in guns a-blazing and say, hey, I'm here. Like, whoa, 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 look here, I'm, I'm here to fix this problem that you people have had for about 100 years. He shows up, and he spends three days at night walking around so no one notices him. He doesn't want anyone to see that he's testing out his plan and getting an idea of what it's really going to take to rebuild that wall. No one knows he's there for that reason. He has an inner struggle, this inner tension, and he doesn't just start, he studies. And this is the first key step in covering that gap. But notice, after he's done that, verse 16, that he, he goes out and no one knows, we see in the immediate verse, verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God that was on me, and when the king and what the king had said to me, and they replied, Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. I love it. He studies, he prepares, he plans, he, he walks around at night so that no one notices. He he figures out not whose fault it is, but what default is present that's keeping them from being able to rebuild this wall. He's, he's getting the lay of the land. He's got a firm understanding, and it's only after he studied does he step up and invite people to start. Now, that's verse 16 to verse 17 seems like very, it's, man, chapter 1, chapter 2, and now we're starting. But almost five months have gone by from his heart breaking, hearing the report of a wall and a city broken to the point that he's standing in the middle of that city inviting people to rebuild five months it sat inside of him you can almost sense the passion when you read when he says come let us rebuild he's like this city it's broken this is a disgrace but we can change it we can do something about it and he starts to stir in them and what i love is when you study when you process when you work through all your pessimism it prepares you to speak to other people's pessimism too because all the complaints that you have inside, they're going to echo. Well, we don't have enough timber. Let me tell you what the king has done. You know the king's Home Depot account that's unlimited? I've got the card. I've got it. Well, but people, you don't have the authority. No, the king has given me a letter. He's given me permission to do it. And he deconstructs every one of their reasons it can't work because he's already done it in himself. And he invites them to be a part. He addresses them. Imagine, a hundred years this wall has sat this way. And he shows up and he has a plan. And he has pre preparation. And he has the Home Depot unlimited account. And the last thing that you see him do, which is beautiful, is that he doesn't start with this me-focused idea. Notice he says, come, let us rebuild the wall. 
Most of us, we fall into a trap of showing up to start, and we treat the problem, and we treat the circumstances, and we treat the people like the Savior has arrived, don't we? We see people do this all the time. I'm here. I'm here to fix it. I know the solution. You people are the problem. I'm here to rescue you. We do that. We do that in our communities, and you see politicians do that all the time, where they step up and we say, Savior's here. But Nehemiah doesn't show up and say, let's start with it focused on the me. He says, we can do this together. We can make a difference. And when they ask him questions, when they speak to the issue at hand, he says, oh, no, here's how God has helped me prepare so that we can do it. That for me in this journey, I think I referenced last week of just even fatherhood, that for me, there was this burden of like, I don't know what it looks like to be a dad. And for a season of time, uh, when I was really starting to wrestle through this in my early 20s, I knew that knowing not what to do isn't the same thing as knowing what to do. You know what? I mean, you know you don't want screaming and fighting in your relationship, but that's not the same thing of actually knowing what you want to see. And so one of the things in my study preparation was I knew I needed a mentor. I needed someone who could guide me. And so part of me starting was, was walking up to a man and getting to know a, a guy by the name of Rick Melanie, who was a, an eye surgeon, and we had breakfast every Wednesday morning at 6.30 a.m. And he would teach me how to be a husband and how to be a father. He would help me work through all the defaults in me that would just become faults in my relationships. And that was how I started, was I knew I needed a guide. And it wasn't I could fix it. I knew that there was a we that could help me. And that was the beginning of my journey. And that's what you see Nehemiah does. It's so brilliant. He doesn't just jump in and start. He studies first, and then he starts. But this isn't like the fairy tales where everything just works out. Right now, if I tip these dominoes over, guess what would happen? They would all fall, and this would still be standing. And I think this is the point. It's in this gap that most of us miss it. This is where I can easily fall prey. I've done all this work, and I think I'm ready. I think this is enough. But this is the point that's critical, because if all these dominoes fell, this thing would still be standing. It would not have been tipped over. And what happens is that this last thing comes out in Nehemiah 4. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart, right? Everybody's in it. It's we, it's, it's the musical, people are singing, the world is happy, everything's great and grand. 50% of the wall has already been built in the shortest time. Like imagine, in just a matter of weeks, what has been this way for under 100 years, 50% of it has been undone. A century undone, and 50% in a few weeks. It's like, yes, it's happening. But when Sembalat, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And so what you have is a group of people who stand in opposition, these enemies to the nation of Jerusalem, the people who sneak in during the night and uh, pillage and rob and, and murder. Like these people don't like the fact that their easy target is now starting to become more secure. 
And so, verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. You've got enemies of enemies working together to try to stop this thing. There is opposition at an extreme level happening. This is incredible. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So they respond. They're flexible. They said, okay, let's pull a couple men off and make them guards. Let's keep building the wall. But the, the enemies keep stirring. They keep kind of bringing it up. They start to threaten them physically. And so jump down from verse 16. It keeps growing and it keeps growing, the, the escalation of the threats. And so you get from that day on, half of my men did the work. So we've gone from a few men being guards to now half of them. While the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor, the officers posted themselves behind the people of Judea who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. I mean, this opposition, the threats, the pressure has grown so much that half of the workforce is now a security force. And there's this one line in here, I don't know if it's just like the man in me, but it's like they got a drill in one hand and a 45 in the other. It's like Home Depot and like Jack Bauer. I mean, in both hands. This is great. Like these people are like, we're going to build the wall and we're going to shoot some people. Like we're going to take care of business. I mean, they're doing it with both hands. And what you see in this story, what you see is this evolution, this flexibility that stays focused. Right? In the midst of that, Nehemiah gathers the people together, and he knows that these people are afraid. And this is the critical point in verse 14. He says, after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your family, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. They can never take our line, but they can't take our freedom, right? It's this like moment where he rallies and he says, we will be flexible and we will fight, but we will remain focused on what we are doing, which is rebuilding our city. Which is this last critical step for any of us in our journey, whether it's in remaking our marriage, remaking our family, or us starting to affect the community at a grander scale. It's that this last key component is that we have to be people like Nehemiah who realizes that if you're going to do something significant, you have to strive to see it happen. There is no greatness that is accomplished without a struggle. Period. You will not drift into the life that you desire. And neither will the community or the people around you. You have to strive and struggle and step into that. And sometimes that literally means you've got a, a weapon in one hand and a drill in the other. But that striving, that pressing, that stressing, that pushing allows Nehemiah to keep the people focused, and flexible. And what that does is it sets them up so that in Nehemiah 6.15, it says, so the wall was completed by the people in 52. It worked before, so I wasn't affecting it. In 52 days. Nehemiah understood something. What had sat desolate for 100 years had been changed and transformed in 52 days. And here's why it matters. 
Here's why what is in your heart breaking right now matters. Is Nehemiah could have easily that day when he heard the report say, oh, that's bad news. I hate that for them. Man, it really stinks. I wish Jerusalem wasn't like that. But he allowed his heart to be broken. He allowed God to do something inside of him. And in the midst of his heart being broken, he starts a journey that within six months of his heart being broken, a city has been rebuilt. Within six months of his heart being broken, hope is rebuilt. And can you imagine, what if, what if this tiny little part of you that is breaking inside right now is part of something far bigger that God wants to do and what God is dreaming about, what God is inviting you into is not just to have this, but to experience this. What if it's your heartbreaking for your family is meant to build a family dynasty that lasts for generations? What if it's your heartbreaking for the, the inner city kids that you see, the kids whose parents have checked out, who are running up and down your neighborhood that you see every single week, or the ones that you teach in school that are disconnected and are drifting away? What if this is breaking so that God can invite you into doing this? This is why what you feel and what you allow to break inside of you matters. is because you see a broken heart at a news report, and God sees a city being restored. And I'm so glad, I, I imagine, I am so glad that Nehemiah said yes, and I imagine every one of those families whose fathers didn't die trying to defend the city, whose kids weren't kidnapped to be made child soldiers, all of them were grateful that Nehemiah's heart had broken too. Because Nehemiah's heart being broken paved the way for a city to be rebuilt. And it's possible that in 2017, God wants to do something significant through you too. But it begins with you allowing your heart to break. You starting to study to understand why it is the reason it is. Then you begin to start and invite people to lean into it with you so that as you strive through it, solution can come. And that is, I believe, what God is inviting us into in 2017. And that's what his desire for you is this year, too. To be a people that don't curse the problem, but step in and provide solutions.